Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome back to Unreliable Narrators. Can I tell you about tonight's specials? You said welcome back, but I've never been here before. That's all right. There aren't any specials. I guess I'll have the slow-cooked short rib with braised leeks. Oh, we don't serve anything like that. But it's on the menu. No, it's not. But anyway, your friend already ordered for you. Oh, what friend? Uh, Mr. Durden. He arrived minutes ago and placed an order for both of you. Now he's having a fist fight in the bathroom. I don't know anybody by that name. What did he order? Let's see, raw oysters, raw steak, raw buffalo liver, and crudite. He said you need these things after your elective testicle surgery. I did not have surgery like that. Mr. Durden said you would turn all red and sputter just like that. Looks like he's telling the truth. Wait, this Mr. Durden has only succeeded in swapping the statuses of counterfeit and real so that one thing seems like the other. You fascinate me. Do I? No. I need to confront this Mr. Durden. Uh, who? Mr. Durden. There's no one here by that name. You said he's in the bathroom. We don't have bathrooms. We encourage people to pee right at their tables. Use the little blue bowl we gave you. Uh, are you are you sure? Yeah, everybody does it. This seems more like surrealism than an unreliable narrator. If you say so, one thing I believe in my heart is that the customer is always right. <clears throat> unreliable narrators. It's a restaurant and a radio show. And now, Arthur Godfrey. Okay, so that's a lie, that I'm Arthur Godfrey. And a lie is not the same thing as an unreliable narrator. And I would say also a a false persona is not necessarily the same thing as an unreliable narrator. So, for example, you know, I don't know, Eminem, Marshall Mathers, Slim Shady. I don't know whether one of those is an unreliable narrator. To to me, as is the case with David Bowie, uh, those are multiple personae, right? So that's a little bit different. Um, I think a surprise plot twist uh, is also does not equal an unreliable not does not necessarily equal an unreliable narrator an unreliable I can't say it an unreliable narrator you have no idea what my day has been like really I've been following this ribbon down all these labyrinths and my brain is really messed up right now but anyway that's a very encouraging way to begin a show so here's the other thing that I have to tell you as we go along here my guests and I are going to be talking about specific works of culture because we have to right there's no way to explore this topic without doing that in so doing we will mention things. We will try not to do spoilers that are like on the nose spoilers. Like we're not going to say, you know, Rosebud is the name of the blank. We're not going to do that. But (laughs) inevitably, we are going to be saying things, just even using the term unreliable narrator in conjunction with certain works of art and culture. We may be slightly giving away things that you didn't already know. And we be a grown up about it. Be tough about it. We're not going to wreck anything for you. We promise. (laughs) <laughs> that actually might be an unreliable statement. But anyway, um, if you really get hysterical about this, you probably shouldn't listen to the show. I mean, if you get really worried that you know something's going to be wrecked. Uh, but I think you'll be okay. So stay with us. Brian Francis Slattery is in studio with us. He's the arts editor of the New Haven Independent uh, and editor uh, of the New Haven Review and the fiddler in Dr. Catterwall's cadre of clairvoyant <laughs> claptraps among other things. Uh, joining us in a little while, we'll have Janet Potter. Uh, she's a staff writer for The Millions, which is this mega 
book reading and book criticizing uh, website. And she's the co-host of their literary talk show, The Book Report. Uh, and uh, joining us here in this segment, Will Hockman. He's co-author of The Critical Companion to J.D. Salinger and a professor of English at Southern Connecticut State University. A little bit later, you'll meet an author who has written a, a novel with an unreliable narrator. So, but Brian, maybe we could just begin by, so I, I said a whole bunch of things which an unreliable narrator is not. So now we have to say what an unreliable narrator is. So what's your working definition of it? Um, I guess I, I would I would def- I would define it quickly as, you know, a narrator where you realize that not being able to entirely trust what they say is sort of part of the story. It's not just that it's not just that, you know, every narrator is unreliable to some degree. They don't tell you everything because they can't tell you everything. But sometimes that doesn't really matter that much. Um, sometimes it matters a lot. And when it matters, the more it matters, the more the the more the term starts to make sense, you know, to understanding what's going on. Right. So and so sometimes an unreliable narrator creeps up on you. Right. You know, um, you don't know at first that it's an unreliable narrator. Um, uh, at other times, it's pretty clear almost from the get go that this is somebody you c- right. cannot fully trust. And sometimes it's kind of a thunderbolt a- at the end. Too. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. So, I mean, for example, I mean, probably the most scorched earth example of that might be something like The Usual Suspects. And we're not going to tell you <laughs> the ending of The Usual Suspects. But now that we said Usual Suspects, an unreliable narrator, we've told you something fundamental. We feel bad about that, but it's an old movie anyway. So, right, right there. I mean, so there, right. the unreliable narrator kind of is the plot almost. Or Yeah, absolutely. I mean, without ruining... I don't think it ruins the movie to say that there's a small percentage of people who who are angry at the movie at the end because they question what exactly they are left with after right. the movie's over, you know, and that's and it, it's all because of the unreliable narrator device, you know, that you 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 end up questioning an awful lot about that movie and <laughs> and there's there's a reasonable question as to what exactly you have been told. Right. Yeah. So if you're spending uh, however long that movie is, 90 minutes to yeah. two hours uh, in the arms of an unreliable narrator, then you are having a, effectively a completely false experience. Um, <laughs> let's hear yeah. a little clip from uh, The Usual Suspects. Nobody ever believed he was real. Nobody ever knew him or saw anybody that ever worked directly for him. But to hear Kobayashi tell it, anybody could have worked for Soze. You never knew. That was his power. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. He becomes a myth, a spook story that criminals tell their kids at night, rat on your pop, and Kaiser Soze will get you. And no one ever really believes. Do you believe in him, Verbal? Keaton always said, I don't believe in God, but I'm afraid of him. Well, I believe in God, and the only thing that scares me is Kaiser Soze. So there's a bunch of characters talking about Kaiser Soze. And, well, we're not going to say anything more about that. But other than there is an unreliable narrator somewhere in there. Um, (laughs) You know. Um, But I think we should add Will into the conversation and talk about, I think, sort of the um, uh, proto-unreliable narrator in American fiction. I mean, there's sort of lots of them. But the one that, first of all, almost everybody experiences, you just, you're not getting out of this life without reading Catcher in the Rye, is Holden Caulfield. So um, he is an unreliable narrator on multiple levels. And, and Will, maybe I'll, I'll let you sort of kick this conversation off here. Um, it, it, I, if you were to try to explain to somebody 
how Holden Caulfield is an unreliable narrator. How would you go about it? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, and I've studied this for a long time since graduate school, and I have my rhetoric of fiction by Wayne Booth by my side. He actually coined the term unreliable narrator, and he listed a lot of books, but you're right. I think between Huck Finn and Holden Caulfield, we have, we have the birth of unreliable narration standing side by side with, with some truth, some insight, some construction of a story that that stays with people. So I, I think you have to realize that part of the unreliable narrator is the success of, you know, not walking away. I mean, uh, if, if Donald Trump is, is talking about things and he's spewing false facts all, all over the world, I, I turn the TV off. But when Holden is saying, I, I, you know, um, uh, I'm literate, I'm not literate, but I read a lot, or things like that. He's he's throwing out all these contradictions that make readers say, well, you know, he does sound kind of literate, and he he is mentioning uh, his favorite books, and and he's pretty young, and he speaks really well. Of course, that's Salinger's illusion of, of, of creating a young, intelligent person. But, you know, it really comes down to the gaps that that readers fill. And an unreliable narrator actually pushes readers along to really do more action in the story. So, you know, Wayne Booth has this idea that readers create an implied author in their mind. And then when you add that to, um, you know, a willing suspension of disbelief and a reader is engaged, then, um, you know, I mean, I mean Salinger even... Uh, even has Holden explain it this way. This is a quote from the catcher. It's funny. All you have to do is say something nobody understands. And then they'll do practically anything you want them to. Well, so when we're reading Catcher in the Rye, Brian, what we are is under Holden Caulfield's narrative spell, right? I mean, if we're going to buy this book, we're going to buy into the spell that he's casting. But, in fact, from the very beginning, I mean, I think early on he says something like, I'm a terrible liar. In fact, if you ask me, you know, if if I'm going to to the pharmacy, I might tell you that I'm going to the opera because I'm terrible. I'm terrible that way. So he he does warn us. And and then I think uh, for some of the reasons Will is mentioning, because he's so – uh, slippery, so elusive, we can, depending on how old we are and what our frame of mind is when we read Catcher in the Rye, we can map a lot of possibilities onto him. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I really like I really liked what just got said about the, the idea that the reader fills in all the spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and part of the reason for that is, of course, because we have no way of corroborating anything that, that he says. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we just got one narrator, um, at least in this one. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly part of the pleasure of reading that that you get to engage with it and sort of make up some of the story for yourself, you know, which is which is a lot of the pleasure of reading fiction after a while. You know, when after you've after you've sort of figured out a little bit how fiction works as a reader, you know, part of the fun is is of getting to sort of be a much more active one. Yeah. So and Will, it does seem to me that um, Catcher in the Rye is something that maybe we read more than once in our lifetimes. And as we do that. Uh, we are filling in the gaps in different ways. So as a teenager reading Catcher in the Rye, uh, I, like a lot of teenagers, saw Holden as this kind of prophetic voice for the most part, that he was um, using a kind of vernacular that in 19, well, I was, wasn't reading it in 1951, but in the year that I was reading it was, was a little bit unusual and was very seductive. He was using some bad words and stuff like that. And he was kind
kind of he appears to be speaking truth to power too, right? He's just saying these people are phonies, those people are phonies. You shouldn't buy any of this stuff. The world is really, really differently constituted uh, than than people want you to believe or accept. And as a teenager, that's a very seductive set of uh, of arguments. When you read it when you're a little bit older, you realize that this is a sad and lost person. So we fill in the gaps a little differently depending on where we are in life. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. You just defined what a, what a classic is. It's not my idea. It's Frank Kermode's. But he said a, a classic work of literature is, is, is a story that yields different interpretations over time. And that's the great thing about The Catcher in the Rye. Uh, different kinds of identification happen with the characters, whether it's age or gender or even, even where you're reading. Um, where you're reading the book uh, can even affect it. But, you know, Colin, you said you, you had the perfect quote when you were talking about it in Chapter 3 when Holden says, uh, I'm the most terrific liar you ever saw in your life. Well, there's something very honest about someone saying that. Mm. And, um, you know, he starts the book, I'm not going to tell you that David Copperfield kind of crap. And by the end of the book, he says, that's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and so basically he's setting you up to, as your other guest said, fill in the gap very fully with what you think he has told you. And so, Brian, this goes back to a point that we, we, you can't believe the number of emails we've been sending around and notes we've all been <laughs> making to one another. It's, it's one of the reasons I've lost my mind today. But at one point, Brian, you were sort of saying, well, the question isn't why are there unreliable narrators? The question is, is does anybody really sort of get preserved as a reliable narrator? I mean, yeah, is David Copperfield right. a reliable narrator? Right. I mean, I'm probably because I'm sort of, you know, I, I had some sort of postmodernism pounded into my brain at some, you know, impressionable age. You know, there's a point where, you know, I can't think of a single narrator that I would think of as totally reliable, you know, in the, if only in the sense because you have no, because you have no way of, of checking what they're saying, right? Um, but the, I think that what's, what's engaging about that and, you know, to go, to go back to Catcher, what's engaging about it is that, like, I have a, like, I have a friend who is a high school teacher and he describes how most of his students now um, don't entirely identify with him. You know, like the, the book is aging in a sort of interesting way mm-hmm. in that they see him as, as like pretty whiny and pretty self-absorbed. And, you know, <laughs> the same way that a, lot of, that a lot of adults might react to him, but they still find it engaging all the same, you know, and they fill in the gaps in a different way. So Janet Potter has joined us. I already introduced you and explained your vast qualifications, Janet. Just uh, take that on faith from a possibly reliable narrator. Um, okay. But, um, you. but, you know, one of the things that I think you observed to our producer, Jonathan McNichol, and I love this, is you use the kind of the, the adage that the best forgeries are the ones that are still hanging in museums. And that, that to Brian's point, maybe there are certain unreliable narrators who have never been fully detected. Um, There are are ones that we, I mean, I don't know whether you would put Nick Carraway in that category, but there are things about Nick Carraway as a teller of Gatsby's story that seem just a little bit dicey, although I don't think he ever gets kicked in there in the list of unreliable narrators. Yeah, I I think that's true. I mean, I... I've never been a fan of Nick Carraway. <laughs> it seems like he's not a very likable guy. And so I always sort of doubted why anybody was hanging out with him and inviting him to these parties. <laughs> and so, but I'm not sure if that mistrust comes from an intention on the part of the author or because Nick Carraway rugs me the wrong way. But I do think it's true that authors frequently have secrets about their characters 
that they hold back and it informs their writing, but we never really get to find out. And and those are the best unreliable narrators, the ones that the author knows, but we never do. On my drive from home to work today, I added Inside Lewin Davis to that category where uh, really at the end of that movie, you, there's things that don't add up in Inside Lewin Davis and cats running around in various places <laughs> they shouldn't be and stuff like that. But at no point do you really default into the idea that he's an unreliable narrator. But it seems as though, I don't know, for, when you pull back, maybe that's uh, maybe that's the explanation. You're seeing the whole world through the flawed prism of this guy who sees the world in a very specific way. Um, you know, Will Hackman, I want to come back to Holden Caulfield now for a second, who's, I think, another uh, uh, narrator that Janet doesn't like very much. But um, we, we can get to that, too. But but so it seems to me one of the things about Holden Caulfield is because he's so elusive. I said this to Brian. People map all kinds of possibilities onto him because he's not. We know at some point he's not telling the truth. So there are some people, for example, who think that Holden is gay and doesn't know it because he has all these kinds of only partially successful encounters with women. And then there's the encounter with the gay teacher uh, near the end where he gets up and, and runs in fear from from the man's couch. Um, and and ambiguous Mr. Antolini, Mr. Antolini. Yeah. So, I mean, it's I mean, I'm just offering that as one possibility. If you don't know when the character is telling the truth with Holden, you can think up all kinds of things. Well, you're right, but, but remember this. Holden is an adolescent. I, teach, I like to teach first-year writing best, and I, so I meet a lot of adolescents, and um, they are unreliable <laughs> in a lot of ways. And, and I, I say that with all due respect. Yeah. I love my students, but um, there's a kind of truth to Holden Caulfield, you know, uh, saying one thing and doing another or um, feeling like a phony, uh, pointing a phony characteristic out, like uh, saying glad to have met you and and still doing it. So, you know, I I think there's a a, a dipsy doodle or a kind of curve in there. I I also, I, I just want to bring one thing to the discussion now, and that is there's a lot of bad unreliable narration. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between the craft of storytelling. I think you mentioned plot earlier. So, for example, I was watching The X-Files last night, and I I thought there were discrepancies. I didn't remember every episode, but I I didn't feel like the, the... the fabric of the story was coming together because I kept on saying, "Well, what about this? Well, why are they? Why are? Why are this? Why is this couple who had a child together so distant now? Um, you know, things weren't adding up for me. So I, I just want to point out that there's a difference between confusion and narration and unreliable narration, and I think there's an art to it, and it it goes it gets back to being able to figure out what part of a reader can fill in the gap. And I, I have to throw out another name. I'm teaching class in a while, so I'm thinking a lot of academic stuff. But Jerome Bruner, uh, in my, uh, an NYU colleague of mine, really had a brilliant idea about how um, uh, um, psychology and uh, narration are, are totally linked together. And, um, you know, we fill in what we read with our own human interest. Uh, with, uh, those are the, the narratives of our lives are the fundamental drivers of our interpretation of literature. But I also wonder whether there are sort of other sort of social currents, Janet. I mean, right now, for example, you know, I, I can think of several works 
uh, in different mediums that real use unreliable narrators and that seem to kind of speak to a moment. So Gone Girl, you know, the book uses two unreliable narrators and in the movie maybe that's kind of knocked down to one. Um, uh, people who've been watching The Affair uh, on television are also watching two narrators, only one of whom can be reliable. I think the implication is that they're both unreliable. Um, I could go on whether there are examples too and you sort of wonder whether this, I, I'm wondering whether this thing is just kind of a steady drumbeat that the unreliable narrator trope is something that people, creators can reach for at any moment or whether it becomes especially appealing at certain moments. Yeah, I think as a, just as consumers, we've become so much more skeptical about everything we take in. You know, we know so much more about the production of television and um, just all the ways that we're being sort of tricked that um, authors are playing with that. And so with Gone Girl, for instance, I think it plays on the paranoia that we never know what's going on and that someone can so easily trick you. Um, Someone can create a document and make it look historical, but it's actually, you know, sort of planted evidence. And I think as we become more skeptical readers, uh, the books are getting trickier and more convoluted um, to make us sort of exercise that muscle. Um, there was a book, I think this past year, maybe 2014, Girl on the Train, mm-hmm. or A Girl on a Train, um, that kind of tried to one-up Gone Girl and got so unreliable that, in my opinion, it became a mess. Um, the original narrator, who is the girl on the train, is unreliable, and then you meet her ex-husband and he's unreliable and then you meet her friends and they're unreliable and at a point you're like well what am I even reading <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this is all just a pack of lies so I didn't finish the book I have to say so I think it's there's an unreliable epidemic going around I, I uh, think so too handled well yeah I think so too and Brian I wonder where I, I wonder I mean I think there's some obviously assignable causes too one of them I think is you know Janet is kind of suggesting this too that in a world where I sound like a movie trailer but in, in a world where truth is pretty manipulable and you can lead double lives online and you know digital reality gives you all kinds of options in terms of multiple selves and multiple narratives about yourself there, it's kind of appealing at that level but I, I also read this essay about supposedly America's first unreliable narrator novel it's I'd never heard of it before. It's called Wyland by Charles Brockton Brown, and it was written in 1798 at the time of the Alien and Sedition Acts, and also when Philadelphia was pretty much an apocalypse of yellow fever. And then you think about something like Mr. Robot, which is on television this year, and which, you know, is... I think a response to 2015's version of the Alien and Sedition Acts. It is sensing that in in a world where a lot of people are peeking into your lives, maybe the idea of an unreliable narrator gets more appealing to the creator anyway. Yeah, and I think it's also I mean, I think Mr. Robot is is one of the best things I've seen on TV in a long time. You know, it and I think that what's great about it is the way that it uses the unreliable narrator to really hit hard a couple of you know a couple of big buttons in society right now you know there's an awful lot of because I, 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 I think that people don't tend to trust the media quite as much as they used to um and at the same time they sort of feel like you know, and they feel like you know the, the your, your government from whatever you know from your local i mean as Rahm Emanuel can tell you your government is holding things from you that they don't want you to know <laughs> And like there's lead in your water. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's so much stuff like that now. And I think that people are so aware of that, that 
you know, to 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 have this guy who is questioning all of these things and at the same time is himself, you know, a real psychological mess, um, um, is yeah. I think like to me it's 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 implying that the you know, the, the the creator of the show is saying, you know, you're a smart person who's engaged in society, so I'm going to write a show that exercises you know that muscle in your brain. You know, in a in a way that you know, you're rewarded for sort of it, having engaged with modern society when you watch a show like Mr. Robot. You know, um, Will, we're heading towards the end of this segment here, but I mean, just to go back to that idea that maybe unreliable narrators are somewhat, anyway, products of their times. How do you feel about Holden in that regard? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, nineteen nineteen fifties is sort of a time when there was this um kind of rosy Eisenhower era view of American life and he kind of emerged as this counter narrative like really you think your kids are okay you think everything's great no look at this kid this kid's a mess and he's leading a life that's completely concealed from everybody around him it it's it's a i think it it, it hinges on the word phony mm. um his critical observations of what's phony and it, and and what isn't really um have a reversal because then you think, okay, he can see what's phony. He's trying to be honest. And uh, so I think that's convincing. I, but I, I agree. Um, his, his unreliability um, is a challenge. But then, you know, when you read it as an adolescent, someone's, someone's writing about me and, and, and someone's speaking and sounding like me. And when you read it in adolescent, you, I mean, as an adult, you, you, you shift in the, naturally because if you reread anything, it's, it's going to be a different text. But, you know, I, I also want to say this. When we were talking about uh, TV, uh, I, I was thinking about Stephen Colbert. I, I think your, your listeners <laughs> might remember he's the an, word. He's an unreliable narrator. You're but, right. Uh, but, no, remember those segments he yeah. would do with the word yes. where he'd say one thing, and then there would be a whole other text or mm. images saying another thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, again, that gap between what, he was, what we knew he was saying but not really believing and seeing something maybe more true or more funny on, on the screen behind him was just enough to say, okay, there, he, he is getting at the truth, but he's getting, it, getting at it artfully with humor. All right, we're going to have to take a pause here for a break. We'll be back with more of this conversations, uh, conversation. So much, to, so much thanks to uh, Will Hockman. Uh, we'll be back with more of Janet and, and with Brian after this. The unreliable narrator. Facts and fiction have blurred the All right, we're back. We're talking about unreliable narrators with uh, Brian Francis Slattery, editor, writer, and musician, Janet Potter, staff writer for The Millions and co-host of their literary talk show, The Book Report. Um, in this segment, we're going to add even other genres to this. We've been talking mostly about books and movies, uh, and uh, we'll be adding music in because there are a lot of unreliable narrators uh, in music. But, Janet, while we're talking about books and movies, you know, it's kind of interesting how many books that have unreliable narrators do get adapted to movies, even though that's kind of a kind of a big lift in certain ways. It's kind of a complicated thing to do. I mean, would you agree that, you know, if you think of, um, I mean, when I say that, I'm talking about things like Fight Club and, and Remains of the Day, uh, stuff like that. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest has an unreliable narrator who's, who's crazy, among other things. Um, and Gone Girl, a, another one adapted to movies. But it seems to me that there's some difficulty there, that it's, 
you know, you can be so much more fluid and control the shutter, the aperture, you know, so well if you're writing this as opposed to filming it, that the camera won't lie about certain things. It won't lie for you. So that with Remains of the Day in particular, I haven't read the book in a long time, but I feel like, you know, he's Ishiguru is able to kind of control our perceptions for a really long time. It takes a, quite a while for me to realize that Mr. Stevens, the butler, is really kind of deluded about the moral status uh, of Lord Darlington, that he's not reliable, not because he's intentionally lying to me, but be- in order to keep himself psychologically together, he has to not believe that his boss is this terrible Nazi th- sympathizer. And it's harder to do that in a movie because the movie just starts showing you things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not as familiar with uh, Remains of the Day, but I, I definitely agree in the case of Gone Girl, the first half of the book is narrated by Nick, who then is played by Ben Affleck in the movie. And in the book, he, you know, is so confused and befuddled. And and then when he sort of becomes a suspect, he's like, but that's impossible. You know, I'm not a suspect. And but you only ever get his perspective and his narration. And so when the other characters start to question him and question his motives, you think, well, what are they seeing that I'm not? But you only have what the author is giving you through Nick's narration, whereas in the movie, you see all the characters, you get to see Nick. And of course, Ben Affleck, I assume, you know, in his performance was reflecting what the reality turned out to be. But the movie has much less control over who you trust, whereas the book is only giving you Nick for a very long time. Um, And the movie sort of makes up for it and sort of pumps in other ambiguities that to make up for what it lost for the book. But they are very differently unreliable. Right. So, and Brian, one thing we haven't really talked about that much is that there are different kinds of unreliable narrators and they have different motivations. So you and I, before we went on the air, we were talking about Blade Runner, which, I mean, if it is an unreliable narrator work... It, it, it's always, it, first of all, in Janet's category of forgeries that are still hang, hanging in the museum. <laughs> and if there's yeah. something important that Rick, Rick Deckard isn't telling us, it's because he, does, he doesn't know it. So right. there's that group of people. They just don't know. And you could almost throw into that Forrest Gump, you know, who doesn't know simply because he's just not capable of apprehending the full dose of reality. Then there are some people who are crazy. You know, I mean, the chief in Cuckoo's Nest is crazy. I think, uh, yep. I think Kesey would say he sees the truth better than a lot of people, even though he's schizophrenic and often sees things, you know, in fan, phantasms. In American Psycho, Patrick Bateman is a different kind of crazy. He's a psychopath. And he's, I think, intentionally manipulating us, mm-hmm. I, I think, anyway. So yeah. he's a little bit different. He has a reason. He has that reason to lie. And then there are other characters like Mr. Stevens in Remains of the Day. And we could think of some other ones who are basically not telling us the truth because they couldn't stand it. You know, if For they sure. really had to tell us the truth, they'd fall apart. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the, I, w- I was thinking about that when we were in, in the first segment, that there's there's really a difference between the unreliable narrator who sort of, I, you know, this is this is going to sound awful, but I start to think of these things as essentially they're some form of con or another, and it's just a question of who's being conned or right. who's attempting to be conned. You know, and there's, there's uh, you know, there's, there's the ones who are trying to con you, and there's the ones who are trying to con themselves or some mixture of the two. You know, and and in some ways, like part of the fun these days of when 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 you see the device being deployed is like how much how much of both is really going on here, and you know, for me as a viewer and as a like consumer of all kinds of cultural stuff, 
you know, that's that's a lot of what keeps the wheels turning, you know, and what what makes me want to watch something again, you know, after I've after I've seen it, you know, uh, when when the you know, like when Fight Club came out, that that movie was really fun for that, you know, for realizing, oh, my God, like how much of this has just been, you know, <laughs> you know it did make you want to watch it again. Well, I mean, I'm wondering, Janet, whether you have the same reaction or whether at times you feel violated uh, by having spent a lot of time in the embrace uh, of something that was inherently untruthful. Yeah, I, I, I do. There is sort of a gotcha feeling where you think, <laughs> well, what have I been doing? <laughs> I gave you so much of my time and attention, especially with a book, which, you know, you'll sp- spend maybe a week or two with. And you think, am I supposed to read it again? <laughs> like, do I owe you that to now go back and adjust all of my interpretations? Um, so I I prefer the unreliable narrator that you're curious about the whole time or you're sort of mm-hmm. working with their narration the whole time. Um, you know, books like Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime mm-hmm. or The Sound and the Fury, sort of like you mentioned Forrest Gump, there's a mental handicap of the narrator and you know that. And so what's unreliable isn't the narrator's intention, it's their perception. You know, they have a perception over the world that's different than mine. And so what they're giving me is truthful to them, but then you have to interpret what that would mean to you if you were the one getting that information. And yeah, they're sort of being conned by their own brain instead of trying to con you. Um, And I find that much more interesting to sort of be working with the author during the whole process rather than getting to the end, kind of like at the end of Atonement, where you find out that the second half of the book slash movie didn't happen. (laughs) It's like, okay, well... It was nice to go on that journey with you, but Damn you, what, what, what did happen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be- better to be watch reading uh, Sound of the Fury with your Benji goggles on the entire time. Yeah, no, I mean, right. I, actually, I agree with you there that the ones the ones where I feel like you know th- this thing has fooled me, you know, I I enjoy that, but it doesn't make me want to see it again. In the same way that you know when you when there's a sort of an era, uh, the aura of this you know this person is trying to fool themselves. Those are the ones that make me hungry to go back, for sure. We would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about music, particularly because we have Brian here and he knows so much about music. So um, I'm, I'm going to give, I, I think, one of the people who does unreliable narrators very well and, and habitually and is particularly pre-Pixar music is Randy Newman. So here's, here's an intentional lying. He, this is not Benji. This is you know Patrick Bateman, basically. The song Sail Away. This is a slave trader basically talking to potential slaves. In America, you get food to eat. You won't have to run through the jungle and scuff up your feet. You just sing about Jesus and drink wine all day. It's great to be an American. All right, so this is uh, this is an obvious unreliable narrator, Brian. Yeah. Although some of 
Some of Randy Newman's unreliable narrators, narrators are more complicated. There are people who didn't understand that the person singing Short People was an unreliable narrator <laughs> and thought that he really didn't like short people very right. much. Um, right. There are other ones. He has an amazing song called, song called My Life is Good, which is just about this you know, Los Angeles jerk who is constantly claiming in a very Trumpian way that his life is good when you can kind of tell it's not. So, but I think almost more than any songwriter I can think of, but you may have your own examples, he's experimented a lot with truthfulness and reliability. Yeah, sure. And I, I feel like Randy Newman is also kind of hearkening back to like, you know, I think that's all over jazz. You mm. know, there there are all kinds of songs in the in the American songbook. That are that are like that, right? Where this is a love song, but you know, if you, it, it's not really, you know, like there's my favorite example is actually is Amos Behaven, right? Which is like the lyrics make it look like the guy really is happy to just sit at home by himself, but it takes like one wiggle of an eyebrow from Fats Waller to make you go like, well, the, if there's one thing this guy is not doing, it's behaving. <laughs> but know, but I, I also sort of wonder about that too, which is about I, I, what I wonder is. It seemed to me that the early days of rock and roll were something of uh, a reaction against that, right? The rock and roll yeah. was going to be very authentic, and we were going to talk right. about our feelings in a very genuine way, and there wasn't going to be so much artifice. I mean, rock and roll was yeah. anti-artifice. And I think to this day it militates against some people's enjoyment of you know, a songwriter like Donald Fagan from Steely Dan where there are all these sort of poses yeah. and refractions. And I think there are a lot of sort of people who are into rock and roll who say, well, that's not rock and roll. This is making <laughs> weird stuff up and pretending to be certain things. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is something to that. I mean, there's a... But, you know, then as it, as time goes on, though, like you, you get people who start getting more interested in that. Like before the show, you're we talking about Peter Gabriel, who has an entire album's worth of unreliable narrators, each of whom have their own sort of, you know, uh, crippling mental problems. You know, and it's it's and it's pretty clear from that, you know, Peter Gabriel himself doesn't suffer from these things, but he's certainly interested in, like, uh, you know, examining the mindset of of people who do. And Janet Potter, I know you're uh, one of your favorite examples of that. That kind of thing is the, the Decemberists, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they put out an album a few years ago called The Hazards of Love. That's actually a rock opera, and there are several characters um, in on the album about five different characters, and they all have conflicting motivations. Um, and yeah, you never quite know. If there's a good guy or a bad guy or who, they seem to be lying to each other, they sometimes proclaim love to each other but then uh, betray each other. It's it's very operatic. I can remember my first experience with an unreliable narrator song, and it, it was caused quite a stir. I should have the year for this in front of me, but I don't. But it was, I think, sometime in the 60s. Uh, there was a song came out that came out called Timothy by the boys. It actually turns out to have been written by Rupert Holmes, who's, of course— somewhat despised for uh, the song Escape, the Pina Colada song, but actually he's written a lot of really good songs. So this is a popular song on the radio. I'm going to p- just play a little bit of it, and then I'll, I'll tell you about it, and then we'll go to break.
So you had to listen to the song too. And this is the song was on AM radio and pop radio, top forty radio in 1971. I'm being told right now, <laughs> and, which was a simpler time. But it really is about these people who are stuck in a mine and they they eat Timothy and um, and but and it's an unreliable narrator song because in the chorus the guy keeps singing Timothy, where on earth did you go? Oh, God, why don't I know? Uh, well, he does know, actually. He ate him. Uh, all right. So on that lovely note, we're going to go to a break. Uh, so here's Al Anderson, live from our studios at one point, to take us out. What is it about me that the girls find so irresistible? Cutie on my left, cutie on my right. If one of them's lucky, I'll take her home tonight. I can't please them all. I do the best that I can. They just need enough time, and I'm only one man. And then I woke up all alone, nobody to love, no one to kiss, and no one to hug. Going back. Dang, Greg said he would do these announcements for me, and where is he? He's so... what's the word? Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill did appear in the intro, and he promised to tweet for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Rick Deckard. For show pages, articles, and photos of the here and now staff throwing something off the Tallahatchie Bridge, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, two stories of bouncing back from absolute bottom. And now... Back to Colin. Actually, I, I should point out, Ode to Billy Joe is the uh, is the other really early unreliable narrator, sort of pop song in America, where you, the, the singer is clearly not telling you something very important. All right, so we're moving on. We're moving away from music and back to literature. With us, Brian Francis Slattery in studio, an editor of the New Haven Review, Janet Potter, staff writer for The Millions and co-host of their literary talk show, the Book Report. And then joining us by phone is uh, Jeremy M. Davies, uh, an editor and the author of two novels, uh, and most uh, most recently that includes Fancy. Fancy is the kind of thing that we're talking about. The topic of this show is unreliable narrators. So we figured we better talk to somebody who, who created one. So, uh, Jeremy M. Davies, well, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. And tell us about your friend Rumrill. Tell us uh, about this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this persona that you created. Uh, well, Rumrill is uh, an extremely lonely uh, and eloquent man who's been stuck in his house. He's sort of a shut-in for years, uh, and he has about 20 cats, and he, his entire life revolves around bizarre and intricate systems that have been developed for taking care of them and feeding them and keeping them uh, out of harm's way. And most of the book is his trying to convince two young people to come and cat-sit for him, um, which involves a lot of strange philosophical and almost science fictional uh, digressions as he attempts to indoctrinate them into his way of thinking. So one of the things we've talked about a little bit here is uh, with our other guests is that notion that the unreliable narrator could be a crazy person, uh, could be yeah. a manipulative sociopath, could be somebody <laughs> like Benji in, in Sound of the Fury or Forrest Gump, whose limitations keep him from actually being uh, a fully reliable narrator because his own apprehension mm -hmm. of reality is flawed. And then there are just some people who are enjoying screwing with people's heads um so and sometimes that's the author and sometimes that's the narrator and sometimes it's both of them so so where would you put where would you put rumrill on that continuum um you know i think he's the sort of person who you start out to just sort of screwing with people's heads and eventually you realize that you've gone so far that you can't find your way out of your own your own lies or your own sociopathy 
Um, because in the book, I mean, he's he's unreliable in just about every way possible. I mean, he may actually be lying, but I think at a certain point he doesn't even know anymore what the truth might be. Um, and part of the thing that he's doing to the, the reader slash the, the young couple that he's orating to is trying to make them similarly unreliable to the point that he doesn't even know what the weather's like outside, probably because he's too lazy to get up and check. But nonetheless, it's uh, unreliability through and through, as it were. So, um, actually, Brian, I don't know. I, does this fit in with your? I know you had a, a comparison, not necessarily to Rum Real, but uh, but in an, uh, uh, a sort of discussion of Tom Jones in that mm-hmm. idea of a kind of the extended relationship between reader and narrator. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would say like that's one of the. I mean, it's it's one of the probably most fun things to try to take advantage of as a writer is the idea that the narrator is. I mean, I I can't probably there's not a. You know what? I'll just go for the enormous generalization that there's probably not a, a, a work of fiction where the the voice is actually the author's voice. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a sort of construct of some kind, and there's a lot of pleasure in sort of getting to know that that narrative construct. You know, especially over a really long book. You know, and to have the narrator kind of flag for you how the how your relationship is changing. You know, as you go as you go through the book. And, you know, that raises an interesting thing. I'm going to ask you about this, Janet, but I, I really want to also hear from Jeremy about this because he's going to have to live this at some level. But so, you know, to Brian's point, so the author creates this character, this narrator, and winds him up and puts him on the table and lets, lets him putter around. Um, but the author isn't always in control of reader perceptions, right? So people, readers, particularly young readers, may have embraced Holden Caulfield as a prophet of truth to a greater degree than J.D. Salinger ever intended. And I don't know what... That Easton Ellis wanted us to do with Patrick Bateman. I don't know what the makers of uh, Mr. Robot wants us to do with Elliot, but sometimes these people, they kind of become heroes uh, cultishly in a way that the author might not have ever intended. And and I suppose, I mean, that's just sort of the way creativity works, right? You you can come up with an unreliable narrative that narrator. That doesn't mean the readers are going to have exactly the attitude that you want them to have. I think that's true. And I think if, especially if the character is unreliable, then you're opening it up to so many possibilities. I mean, the reader has the right to decide for themselves that the narrator is a sociopath. You know? <laughs> uh, if if you're not putting down enough stake posts into what the character is definitively, then who's, who's to stop us from theorizing? Um, I just finished a book uh, called The Light Keepers by Abby Jeannie. Um, which is narrated by a woman who is very untrustworthy. But my theories of why she was untrustworthy changed about seven times during the book. Um, There's obviously realities in front of her that she's missing, but you never know, is, is she actually missing them? Is she lying to me? Is she lying to other people? Is she traumatized? Is she lying to herself? And you never know and it's a it's an exciting book because you're always trying to nail her down and you kind of can't um, and never do. So Jeremy Davies, we're running out of time, but uh, how would you feel about that if, if uh, Rumrill became a kind of cult, a kind of gospel of Rumrill, <laughs> if he became this kind of bathrobe-wearing Neo from the Matrix who really kind of had <laughs> things figured out and people started to embrace his gospel in a way that you really hadn't intended, that you intended him to be more discreditable than they want him to be? Um, I would be extremely amused by it, frankly. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would be all for it in a sense. 
I mean, that's what we, we go to books, actually, because, you know, there are no reliable narrators in real life, right? Everyone is unreliable. We go to books for this sort of suspension of disbelief so that we think we're actually in safe hands. And that's why people love unreliable narrators so much in fiction is because they start to pull that rug out from underneath us. And for some to take Rumrell at his word, um, I, I may find that person a little alarming, but, you know, I, <laughs> it, would be, it would be so perfectly in line with what the narrator wants from his book, I mean, from his, his statement to go out and sort of infect the world with his own brand of unreliability, that it would just be, it would kind of be delightful, actually. <laughs> so I mean, do you feel pretty confident, though? I mean, okay, that, that possibility notwithstanding and being discarded, that that readers will, in a sort of creeping gradu- gradual realization, uh, understand who it is that they're dealing with, that they're not dealing with Jeremy Davies, that they're dealing with this other person whose vision of reality is not really your own. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly confident of that. I mean, at least I hope so. <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, I think the book very clearly signposts it that, uh, that Rumrell is a, little, is a little off, or maybe the world that he's in is a little off, and it isn't quite our world. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not a serious concern for me, but it would be interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and uh, Brian Slattery, this is sort of back to our original point, which is that, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there are people who didn't understand that Archie Bunker was essentially giving out an unreliable account of American life. <laughs> they saw him as somebody who was actually telling it as, as it is. Sure. I mean, that, I think that's one of those uh, that's one of those weird things about that show. Right. That like Norman Lear is probably politically about as far away from Archie Bunker as you could have gotten. Right. And I, and I I've heard that he was like really surprised to learn that people liked the character so much <laughs> at first, you know. Then then he realized what he'd created and sort of ran with it. But well, there's so much more that I'd love for us to be able to talk about. I first of all want to thank uh, Jonathan McNichol who produced this show, Brian Slattery here in studio with us, Janet Potter from The Millions and her literary talk show, The Book Report, Jeremy Davies, the novelist. Fancy Will Hockman, uh, he is a scholar of J.D. Salinger. We could have talked about other stuff. There's, you know, video games apparently rely heavily on unreliable narrators. And how do we feel about making a murderer versus, say, serial, where Sarah Koenig deals with the whole unreliable narrator problem by telling you all of her doubts about herself? What could be more reliable? Call me irresponsible. Yes, I'm unreliable, but it's undeniably true. (sighs) I just had the most vivid dream about work. I was running the board for a show about unreliable narrators. Greg was there. We played clips. Colin wasn't wearing any pants. It just seemed so real. 